Okay. Are we somewhat ready? Like on a scale of 1 to 10? Um, we're going to do Leviticus. I just guess people don't just care about Leviticus. And it's just one day they're going to get in big trouble. Uh, last week we talked about a really good book to maybe look at during this study. Um, the Year of Living Biblically. It's going to be a TV show. I can't imagine the TV show being any good, but that's just me. Um, this is, this A.J. Jacobs is a scream. He wrote a book about the Britannic Encyclopedia, and um, he is a hoot, and it is an interest. He was a non-practicing Jew who decided he needed to figure out what that means to be a practicing Jew. So he said, you know, for one year, I'm just going to do what the Bible says as far as the Old Testament laws. And most of what he did, you'll find in Leviticus. And it is a month-by-month diary of his one year, including not shaving. And um, it's just very well-done book. The TV show, I just can't figure out how they're going to do that. But um, it's... Huh? Well, he he lived it. He studied the laws, the Jew, the Orthodox laws, and he, to the best that he could, um, as literally as possible, he lived those for a year. He added different ones. He didn't start right there in, in September first and do them all, but he added different ones. He built a tabernacle in his kitchen. Um, he watched. He ate only clean food. Um, only kosher food, only food that you could say you could eat in Scripture. He didn't shave. He followed the dietary law, the, clean law, the cleanliness laws. Somebody wants to borrow this, they can borrow it. Um, just, if you eventually return it, great. Um, I've read it. I, it's, it's just, it is a fun book. I, it was, uh, I, I read it kind of because somebody knew, a friend of mine knew how much I love Leviticus. And so he said, well, you should read this book. And, um, and I just got a kick out of it. It was, it was fun. Um, so we're going to start Leviticus 1.1. We're going verse by verse. We're just going to be here for a year. I don't care. Um, no, Leviticus 1.1 is really where we're going to start. But we're really not going verse by verse by verse. So just relax, those of you who just had um, fear. Um, because I think it's important to understand Leviticus to understand anything scripture, we got to understand the God of that of, of the book of Leviticus. Uh, excuse me, guys, what are you doing? Cookies. Uh, Lennon, no cookies for you. Lennon, put the cookie back. I'll tell your dad. No, too bad. We'll throw it out. Um, it's important to understand <coughs> the nature of the God that the writer of Leviticus wants us to know. Traditionally, uh, Leviticus is, we are told Leviticus is written by Moses. We don't know. You know, it, they say that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, which would be difficult because he died during the writing of the book, and so I don't think he could have really written all five of them. He was dead, if you look at chronologically of order. And also, there's one line in, in one, of the, one of the Pentateuch, one of the, the Torah books that Moses supposedly wrote, and it says this, and you tell me if Moses would have written this. Moses was the most humble man alive. I mean, right? Think about that. If you're the most humble man alive, you surely aren't going to write that you're the most humble man alive. So I have real questions whether Moses wrote it. The reality is it doesn't matter to me um, because most of the Bible, if you scholarly look at it, we don't know who wrote what. There are things we do know. Uh, For example, most of Paul's letters might not have actually be written by Paul. Might have been a student of Paul. Um, so don't get worked up over that. Uh, but do know this. 
Like all first five books of the Bible, Leviticus began as an oral tradition. We talked a little bit about that last week, which is why so much of it seems to be repetitive. Because it need, if it was being passed down orally, it had to be repeated. And so over the years of repeating, things got... And so they just... When they finally penned it down, this is what they did. So, so please don't get worked up over that. Now, it is, now if you have a question during, just feel free to ask. Um, the, the, the reason why Leviticus was written, the reason why the law was given, was because God wanted us to be holy like he is holy. And that's a real important thing to understand. Holy, not meaning set apart, not meaning perfect. But, but, but being full, I think, did we talk about that last week, or was that in a sermon, did I, or did I dream it? Um, holy is often talked about as being, I had a meeting with my bishop today, which is why I'm in a tie, so uh, someone said, like, did you have a funeral? No, just a meeting with the bishop, pretty much same thing. <laughs> funeral, meeting with the bishop, about, about as painful, and what? <laughs> He's not listening, is he? Um, but holy, yes, it can mean set apart. I mean, please understand. But really, a better Hebrew understanding of holy is, is being full. It's the fullness of. Um, and in this case, being holy like God is the fullness of the righteousness of God. Um, that's a much better Hebrew understanding, a much, a much better Judaic understanding um, is how I understand it. Um, so there'll be people who argue with me, and that's fine. Um, I'm all right with that, but that's how I understand the Jews to understand it. Um, and usually if I'm telling you I had to understand the Jews to understand it, because I always bounce it off my rabbi, uh, one of Jill's patients, one of my favorite, one of Jill's patients, retired rabbi, he was at the main um, temple in uh, Atlanta. He's a big Braves fan, but we don't hold that against him. Um, but Alvin is who I usually call. Hey, Alvin, I need to know, is this true, not true? And I've been bugging him a lot for this next sermon series, um, a whole lot, and I think he's tired of me, but that's okay. So, um, but, but he's the one that set me straight to holy. He said, for the Christian understanding, holy usually does mean set apart. For the Jewish understanding, it has been the fullness of righteousness, of God, so, um, so it's neat to understand that's what we're dealing with, and that's why it was written. So the ceremonies, the rituals, the the sacrifices, the offerings, the laws, the dietary laws, and all was as a way of of God. Not not he wanted his people to be different. He wanted his people to have this fullness of righteousness. He wanted his people to be different than the other the other religions. He wanted his people to be, wow, there's something different about them. So he sets up these laws and these rituals and these sacrifices. We're going to talk today, we're going to try to get through all the five first offerings that are written um, in, in Leviticus. Now, please also understand this, and I'm making the same point on sermons starting tomorrow, no, Sunday, is you can Google some of this stuff. When you Google about Leviticus or about the feast, please, please, please do not read. I mean, nothing against certain parts of the faith, but if it's a real, real evangelical, real conservative group that's writing it, what they're going to do is they're going to take the Jewishness out of it and talk about Jesus. Okay? They're going to say, they're going to compare each of the offerings of Leviticus to the offering of Jesus, okay, as some sort of foreshadowing. It is not why Leviticus was written. The feast of the Jewish that we're going to go over the next five weeks, or four weeks, four to five weeks, are not foretelling the return of Jesus. This uh, is not. So, I'm not going to talk about that. I'm not going to compare um, in this study the, the, the guilt sacrifice that a Jew made and in, in, in relate it to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross once and for all. I, I believe the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, but that is not what these were about. These were Jewish 
in nature, given by God Yahweh, the God of the Jews, uh, the God who made the covenant with Abraham, and he was not foreshadowing what would come in Leviticus. My understanding, my, uh, my interpretation, it's the way I'm teaching it. Um, it's just really important. Because once you do that, you take the Jewishness out. And once you take the Jewishness out of it, and it becomes Christian, then it's no longer Jewish. And it's just, just my opinion. Um, the word that's used for the Lord is Yahweh. You'll never see it in Hebrew. It has no vowels. Uh, whenever they're in, in your Bible, a capital L, the Lord, it is Yahweh, Y-A-H-W-E-H. However, in the Hebrew language, it's just the letters Y-H-W-H, because it was so holy, you couldn't spell the whole name. Yahweh, one of the titles for, for Yahweh could be Adonai, uh, is a good translation. Adonai is one of the many titles of God given in Hebrew scripture, and it is the one who is the master. It is the noble one, is a good um, translation. And it's that Yahweh that is speaking to Moses. Now, this isn't the first time Yahweh speaks to Moses, right? In the bush, Yahweh spoke to Moses. Same Yahweh, same God, same Hebrew, same understanding. So it's important to understand that the God of Hebrew Scripture, and especially Leviticus, and, and is a God who speaks. He didn't show himself, but he spoke. God would not show himself because God was too holy. And what he told Moses is, if you see my face, you will die. So the, the great scripture in Exodus is when, when what I have a sermon that I used on a college campus, could never use it here, is, is the day God moons Moses. Um, because as God on, Moses only saw God's backside. Right? You know that story, right? It's great on a college campus. Not, probably not here. Uh, but I like to think about it. But we have a God who speaks. In Genesis, how is creation made? By God speaking. When Jesus comes in John's gospel, what is he described as? The word, the logos, the word of God. So, so in the Jewish mind, it is always a God who speaks, not a God who reveals himself by physically being seen, but by speaking. And so in this, God, the, the way Leviticus starts is God speaks to Moses, Yahweh speaks. And then also, you have to understand, it's a God who dwells. Uh, in, in, in Hebrew thought, God dwelled with us. We don't think about that in Hebrew uh, thought and Jewish thought, because, but the word, just so you know, in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Logos, the Logos with God, the Logos was God, the word Jesus, and then it said this, and he dwelt among us. Remember that? Someone... The word dwell is the same Greek as the Hebrew word tabernacle. So really what John was saying is, and Jesus, the Logos, tabernacled among us, lived with us, tabernacle, God's presence. That is real important to understand because we always think of the Hebrew God, the God of the Jews, as being this foreign, way out there God who never interacted. He, the Jews believed he was right there. So they set up this tabernacle, and we're going to get into this more later, because Leviticus, one of the things I love is when they describe the tabernacle. Um, it's divided into three basic places. There's the outer court, and uh, with outer curtains and the bronze altar and the bronze basin. It wasn't very clean. It wasn't sterile. It was messy. Uh, and it was where people were making sacrifices for their sin. It was the only place people could enter. So when there was a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, an animal slain, a burnt sacrifice, that's where the blood was. So it was not clean. Okay, so that was the outer. Then you get to the holy place with the tabernacle tent, uh, the veil, the showbread, the altar of the incense, a golden lampstand. Only priest could enter into that, priest being tribe of Levi could only be the ones that would enter into that. And they could only enter it after ceremonial cleaning. Then the 
inner part was the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant was. Ark of the Covenant was Raiders of the Lost Ark. I had friends who went to go see Raiders of the Lost Ark. They thought they were going to find Noah's Ark. And I had to explain to them, no, this would be the Ark of the Covenant, the place where the Jews believed God dwelled. In the Ark, do you know what was in there? Ten Commandments. Why? In the giving of a covenant. This will be later. This is exciting stuff. In the covenant giving, there's always two copies of the covenant made, right? That's, that's why there were two tablets. It wasn't five and five. Sorry. I, I know, it's really kind of, oh, really? wasn't five and five. It was God. He could make as many, he could get all ten on one. He had really good handwriting, okay? Two copies of the covenant, one for the covenant for one part of the covenant, one for the other part of the covenant. So they both would have it. What, Mo, what God said is, I want you to have both of them. And they put in the ark along with the staff, along with manna, and it was in the ark. And it was the presence of God. So this ark went everywhere. Everywhere the people went, the ark went. Which is one reason why David became such a hero. Because it was David, King David, who brought the ark back into Jerusalem. Great story. And then Uzzah, poor guy, touches the ark, smoted. You know that story about Uzzah? The ark was about to fall in the, um, the, the, the dung the, the, that was, it was being pulled by a car. It was about to fall, and Uzzah just reached out and steadied it and... Bam, dead. And um, I have a sermon on that, and it's probably a little wacko, but it's, I had fun preaching it. Um, but, but that's the Holy of Holies. Holy of Holies could be entered one time a year, um, Day of Atonement, by one person, the high priest. That's it, because that's where God dwelled. And um, true story, they would tie a rope around the high priest's ankle. So if he died while he was in there, they could pull him out because they couldn't go in after him. And they didn't know. I mean, they honestly didn't know. Maybe this guy didn't confess all his sins and he goes in a holy holy and he smoked it. I mean, they, so they, they didn't want to leave him in there for a year because no one could go in again for another year. So if he didn't come out at a certain time, they just started pulling him out. I just love that. Um, the tabernacle was always in the center of the community because it was the center of, um, of, the, of the community life. It's like if you go to East Texas um, and there's a square, where are all the churches around the square, the center? That's, that's just how it was. You know, my, my most fun serving a church was in a couple of East Texas county seat type towns with squares and and the churches are you would have Methodist, Baptist, Church of Christ. Assembly gods were always way off somewhere, so we never could figure that out. And 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 there was never a Catholic church on the square because it was East Texas. And um but it was a center where life happened. And that's what the, the tabernacle was. So it's important to understand that. So Questions on that, because now we're going to get into what I think is fun stuff. Okay, we're moving on. There are two ways to look at sacrifice, okay? There is one way, it's, um, there was one way to make a sacrifice where you, where you uh, did it in an, uh, in an attempt to change the mind of the God whom the sacrifice is being offered to. You needed to appease the gods, so you made a sacrifice, Okay, very common first century, by the way, in the, in, in, in the church in Ephesus, um, which was one of our main early seven churches, uh, the, the community was all about sacrificing to appease the gods. It was all about magic and superstition. Magic and superstition was built on the idea that the gods are angry and that the gods needed to be appeased. And the way you appeased the gods is you made sacrifices. What was going on in Leviticus days is a lot of children were being sacrificed to appease the gods. 
So um, uh, either children or virgins, um, and the 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 it, it wasn't. It was to so they so that Leah wouldn't be punished, and so it was very serious understanding of of the relationship between God and humans, which is why Yahweh God was so revolutionary, which is why so many people couldn't buy it, because here was a God who um, who the sacrifices were made. Not to change God, but to change the one making the sacrifice. Okay, what part? Okay, it's like prayer. If you pray to change God's mind, chances are your prayers are going to get very frustrated, right? I mean, chances are. Richard Foster in the book Celebration of Discipline makes this statement. That prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes the one who prays. Sacrifices doesn't change God's mind, but it changes you when you make the sacrifice. You're the one that has the internal change because you, under, you, you taste, experience God's grace. Does that make sense at all? Okay. Um, and that's a real difference in understanding of in the day of Leviticus, and even in the first century, um, and with all the different gods, you had these gods who needed to be appeased, they were angry, then you had the gods who, who um, then you had Yahweh, who simply needed to be loved. Um, so, any questions so far? Because now we're going to go through the five offerings. Six, we're good, we're good. We're not going to go as long as them, just so you know. Richard can go an hour and 15 minutes, hour and a half, I cannot. It's funny because Richard preached shorter than I do, but he teaches longer than I do. I can't figure that out. Okay, so we have the, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Please, once again, I'm begging you, with all that is good, do not try to tie this into Jesus other than imagining Jesus as a boy, as a young adult, as an adult, going to the temple and making these sacrifices, going with his mom and his dad and his family and making these sacrifices um, because that is absolutely a huge, huge understanding. So the first sacrifice that we have is the burnt offering. Leviticus 1, burnt offering. The burnt offering is, um, is, is called olah, O-L-A-H, um, and it's the offering of ascent, A-S-C-N-T. It's the burnt offering. The burnt offering was a, I probably should, hold on, let me get my other thing. There were, let me back up for a second. There were, of the five offerings, there was two categories. There was the ones that were compulsory and the ones that were a sweet aroma. Compulsories were required by God. If there was a broken, a broken in the relationship, it was required by God. The others, uh, the sweet aroma offerings, were um, considered voluntary. All right? The burnt offering was a voluntary offering. It was not required because it had not, it was not as much about um, the breaking of a... Um, of, of a relationship as much about, it was more about worship, okay? Um, so so the, and the reason why it's called the offering of ascent, because it was all about this offering that was going up so that God could smell the sweet aroma of the smoke. Um, do, do you, uh, anybody read Book of Revelation? okay. One of the coolest parts in the book of Revelation is when John, or whoever wrote the book, says that there was 30 minutes of silence in heaven. Remember that? It's really the best part of the book of Revelation. Because all this commotion is going on, and the seals are being broken, and it's lightning and thunder. And then all of a sudden, the, the, the smoke, the prayers of the saints reach God and 
And God silences heaven for 30 minutes so that he can hear the prayers of the saints. And it was all because he smelt the aroma of the burnt offering. It's really kind of cool. Um, interesting enough, the reason why I think it's cool, um, psychiatrists and whatnot will tell you that if you, the number one recall that brings back a memory is smell. I think there's a connection there. I always warn people after a death, you'll be walking down, you'll smell something, and the, the reason why it's so real and so hard, because you don't recognize it right away, you just start crying, and then it's about 10 minutes later, you say, oh, that smelled like, so I think, the, I think there's a, that's what the burnt offering is. Um, now, there were different, um, it was more, it wasn't as much for the atonement of sin, although some will tell you it was. It was more of an expression of devotion to God. And here's the thing. It was to burn continuously. Which implies that throughout the day, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, they were making offerings to God. Because Leviticus says it was to burn continuously. Which, which is really pretty, pretty cool in a way. Um, it was the earliest type of offering in, in, in the Old Testament. We find it first in Job, which was the first. Job was the first um, written book of the Old Testament as far as actually written, being written down. Um, so it was this burnt offering and... What God made real clear, though, is what could be offered. Children were not on the list. Which, again, revolutionary, radical thought for that day. You could do a bull, a male sheep, a male goat, a dove, or a young pigeon. Dove and pigeons are very similar, by the way. When you do a funeral and you have the release of doves, they're not really doves. They're pigeons. Just thought I'd share that with you. Um, so it was real important to understand that depending on your wealth, what you were required to sacrifice. For example, Robert, who makes a fortune, would have to sacrifice the bull. And for other reasons, he'd have to sacrifice the bull. But he would sacrifice the bull. Leah, the children's director, makes nothing, would be able to get away with sacrificing a pigeon. What God wanted to make sure was that all people could worship him through sacrifice. So you couldn't use an excuse, well, I can't afford the sacrifice. Okay? Now, there were parts of this sacrifice that the, that the um, sacrificer did and parts that the, that the priest did. There were very strict rules on how you were to kill the animal, what parts were to be burnt, and what you were to do with the leftover. Okay? Now, I'll give you a hint. On the burnt offering, there was nothing to be left over. It would all be consumed by fire. Um... You, uh, you as the worshiper, let's say you were bringing the animal, you would be the one that laid your hands on the animal, except for the bird. As a way of saying, I am offering myself. When I lay this hands on this sheep, I am off, this, is, this sheep is now representing me as I offer my total being to God in worship, okay? And then you had to, you killed the animal, unless it was a bird. Then it was killed by the priest. And I have never found a real reason why for that. I just thought it was a little weird. Okay, given the choice, I'd rather kill the bird than kill the bull. Just saying. But that's not done. Um, you would skin it. 
and you would dismember it and you would wash it. It was not a, and then when you got all that done, then the priest would cut it into pieces. It was not chopping, it was not, it was not hacking. It was a very careful dissecting of the animal to make sure that each part was free from blemish was very important. Okay? And the parts they say were represented. The head represented the mind and the intellect, the entrails, the will and the affection, the legs, the outward walk and conduct, and the fat, the health. Now, I have not found that in many places, so I cannot attest if that's Judaic thought, and I did not call Alvin to ask him that because I've been bothering him too much. Um, so I can get that answer. So that's what you did. The priest would be the one that handled the blood. You would not. Okay? If it was a bird, um, the blood of the bird would be drained out on the side of the altar. The priest would be the one that would burn um, the animal on the altar. Now, the priests, members of the Levi tribe, were not paid. What, so the skin would not be burnt. The skin would be given to the priest as, um, as dues or as, as um, pay. Okay? Um, and there'd be nothing left. So the, the whole animal would be um, burnt at the altar. And it was to show your total dedication to God. Burnt offering. Continuously burning in the outer courts on the bronze altar. Smoke continually rising up. Blood everywhere. Very. Um, now, if you want to compare it to Christ, if you're into that, um, if you saw last pa- uh, the Passion of Christ was it, was it, was that right title, the Passion of Christ by Mel Gibson. Mm-hmm. Remember the scene when he was getting beaten, and the blood was everywhere. Okay, that would be the reason why it was so evident. There is, the Mel Gibson uh, was trying to reenact what it would have looked like um, at the outer courts of the of the tabernacle, just blood everywhere. Questions on the burnt offering. Yes. Yes, on the north side. Don't know why. They it, part of what part of what the law was so detailed with is to um, because if if you were if you were you if you were custom to um, being worried whether you were doing it correctly to appease the gods, because that was the thing. When you were trying to appease the angry gods, you didn't know if you were actually doing it correctly because you didn't know whether, well, did this really work? So what God did, this is a Judaic thought, what God did is he just gave very specific instructions so that, Richard, when you went and you slaughtered it, you knew, okay, I'm supposed to do it on the north end, not the south end. So that way you wouldn't question, because you would follow it to the letter, and so you knew you were doing it correctly, so you wouldn't go home and say, gee, I wonder if that worked. So that's why the details, but why the north side? I always just figured because God was a Mets fan. is the only thing I could. North, never mind. It would work better with the Cubs, but it... No, the birds weren't. It was very specific which ones were which. Very specific instructions. So we, and that's what makes Leviticus hard to read. It's so detail-oriented. It's like you're just beating your head against the table. Like, why do I have to know the north side, the east side, the south side? Why do I have to know exactly how to cut up the animal? Why do I have to know? You, it, it was for the people who were making the sacrifices so they could follow it's, it's written by engineers from University of Florida. <laughs> step by step by step by step. It was not written by liberal arts majors. 
liberal arts majors said, well, look, just take the bull, you know, do a little, whatever. Feel good about it, right? Engineers laid it out step by step by step. It was so that you knew you were doing it correctly. I mean, imagine how you would feel. You took your bull, Dona, right? You took your bull. You take it to the altar. This is your bull, right? You take it. You slaughter it at the altar, and you go home saying, oh, my God, did I do that right? Maybe I did it wrong. So then you got to go get another bull and do it something different. Make sure. But God said, I'm just going to solve that. I'm going to tell you exactly how to do it, step by step by step by step. So when you killed your bull, you went home and said, done. Because I did a north end, I skinned it this way, I watched the priest, he chopped it this way, this is what we did with the blood, all of it was gone, we followed the rule. That's why. But you, is this, for, for those of us who like this sort of thing, it's kind of fun to read, because then you kind of scratch your head, I wonder what God was thinking. It's some of my questions I have for God. I have a list that Jill knows to put with me, so I'd have it with me. Be like, you don't have your questions you want to ask God? Really? Oh, I've got a list. God and I are going to be talking for a long time. My, my first question, just so you know, my first question I want to ask God when I see him is, um, you know on the Mount of Transfiguration, you ever think about this? Uh, Moses, uh, um, Peter and James and John are on the Mount. Jesus changes, right? Remember who was with Jesus? Moses and Elijah? I just want to know how Peter knew it was Moses and Elijah. Because there was no pictures. Like if, if, if we had transfiguration and it was, it was Abe Lincoln and George Washington, we've seen portraits. We know what they might have looked like. Here's Moses and Elijah. So in my mind, they always just had a name tag on. Hey, I'm Moses. And so I want to ask God, how did Peter know who they, no one else keeps up at night with that one? I, it bothers you, doesn't it? See, what's going to happen now, it's going to. You're going, to go, you're going to go look in Scripture and say, how did he know your mind doesn't work? That's only a liberal arts mind that works that way. Okay, second offering, grain offering. It is known as the menchah, uh, uh, Hebrew for grain. Um, it was another voluntary expression of the devotion to God. It was, it was to thank God for his goodness and his providence. Why? Because most people were grain farmers, agriculturers. And it was, the, it was reminiscent back to Cain and Abel, first fruits and all that. It was generally cooked bread. That was the offering. Oh, I forgot to tell you about the burnt. When they were burning it, they added frankincense to give the sweet aroma. Yeah, so, so it was that, that that went up to God. Sorry, I don't know how I forgot the most fun part. Um, and now, if you read some, they'll make a big, some people make big to do with frankincense. Oh, that's what Jesus would. Frankincense. Good smell. Better than smelling dead animals and burning hair. Uh, you had a lot of frankincense, baby. <laughs> Just throw it in there. Uh, so you had the grain offering, and it was generally cooked bread. It could be baked, grilled, fried, roasted, or made into cereal. It was seasoned, it was unsweetened, and it was unleavened. It was unleavened. <laughs> Why? This goes back to Passover, that sort of thing. Back there. You're going to see unleavened bread throughout um, Leviticus throughout Jewish history. I always go back to this week. We're doing Feast of Trumpets um, as the as the feast, which is like my second favorite feast. And um, of the, I, I want to be Jewish just to do this. Um, and I had to check with Alvin. This is one of my long questions to Alvin, because what you're supposed to do is you take unleavened bread crumbs and you put them in your pocket, right? And then unleavened bread crumbs. Not the progressive Italian ones, not panko, <laughs> unleavened bread crumbs. And you put them in your pocket, and then you go to water like a stream. And as you repent, it is the beginning of New Year, as you repent of what you've done wrong, you throw the bread crumbs into the water, and you float it away. 
Now we're trying to figure out how to do that in the, in the sanctuary. So Sunday you can, so we're thinking about getting a big rain gutter and a hose and you. Okay, so we really probably won't do that, but we did have that conversation. <laughs> I mean, it is very, but think about it. You put it in your pocket. And then you reach into your pocket and you put out, and it is a symbol of, it's just, um, it's gone. It's washed away. It's just so cool. See how cool it would be to be Jewish? We don't have that stuff. Jews and Catholics, they have all the good symbols. Um, Now, only, now the difference between the burnt offering and the grain offering is the burnt offering, there was nothing left and the priest got the skin, right? And too bad they couldn't eat pig because could make some really good pork rind. Um, What? But they couldn't because they can't have pig. Good. (laughs) No bacon for you. But in the grain offering, not all of it was burnt. Certain percentage of it was burnt, and the rest was given to the priest. Levi tribe were the only ones not allowed to work for money. So they had to be taken care of. Um, uh, It was also the first fruits. You did not bring your leftovers. Only the finest flour. Only the best. Just like the animals had to be without blemish. You could not bring, oh look, we have some scraps on the ground. The best, the first ones you harvested, that was what you, you brought to the, the grain or the barley. Um, there, there's no laying on the hands, there was no slinging the animals. You would prepare it in advance. You would separate part of it for the priest and part of it burning. The altar... It would be burnt on a place on the altar, and it would be only set on fire by the priest. Um, there would be nothing left for you. Um, however, if there was, and we'll get to this later, if it was one of the peace offerings or the fellowship offering, they would leave some so you could have a meal. So, with me? Questions? Um, on the grain offering? You want to do one? Let's do a grain offering. No? Okay, we won't. It would smell better than the burnt offering. But again, it was voluntary. And they never, they don't talk about it in the same sense as being continuous, like the burnt offering. Third, peace offering. Uh, The Hebrew word is shalem. Similar to Shalom, but not quite Shalem. Um, now, there were three kinds of peace offerings in Leviticus 3. Um, there was the Thanksgiving offering, um, the free will offering, and the wave offering. Uh, the offering could be a cattle or a sheep or a goat. It could be male or female, but it still could be, couldn't have any defects or blemishes. Um, if it was a Thanksgiving offering, you could use um, bread to make that offering. Um, it was used, the peace offering was used to um, consecrate a meal between two or more parties before God and to share that meal um, in a fellowship of peace and commitment to each other. Um, in, in cultures since the beginning of time, meals have always been a very important part of, of relationship building. In um, the Asian culture, if you were in a more ancient Asian culture, if you wanted to be friends with somebody, you would invite them to a meal, you would share, and over the meal, you would ask to be friends. It's the bond. Uh, so the peace offering was partially that. Um, 
you, when you took it to the priest, you would lay hands on the animal. Um, the animal was killed not at the altar, but at the sanctuary entrance. And it was done by the worshiper, again, except for a bird. Don't ask me why. I do not know why the bird. <laughs> I just don't know. I don't have that answer. Um, the blood would be gathered in a bowl and splashed against the sides of the altar, much like the burnt offering. Um, the fat would be burned on the altar, and the rest of it would be um, shared as a meal, with part of it, once again, going to the priest. Okay? So that's the peace offering. Moving on, questions? You guys are like way... The salt of the covenant. Yeah. Uh, the, the, there, there's, uh, salt was given at the peace offering and other offerings. And as part of the covenant, uh, salt, salt talked about the... One reason why I saw the peace offering, because it was the way they preserved. So it was a preservative. Um, and you would, the rule was you had to eat that meal by the end of the day. So in some way you had to preserve it, so it would be salt, and became also part of the covenant, um, because what it, the symbolism of the salt and the covenant was that it's, it prolongs, it's everlasting, so that's why. Questions on that? Thank you. I forgot that part. Okay. Um, next, sin offering. Uh, Hebrew word is chathath, C-H-A-T-T-A-T-H. Uh, it means sin. Um, this is atonement for, this is my favorite, for unintentional sin. Right? Um, in the Catholic Church, when you went to confession, any Catholics in here? Anybody go to confession ever? Just me? Yeah. Isn't it beautiful, Eric? Yeah. Isn't it fun? You get dragged down to confession, sit in the booth, the priest, and then you're making stuff up as a kid, right? Because you have to do something. And you didn't want to really confess your real sins because then the priest would know. But um, you always had to confess sins that you didn't know you committed. Right? I mean, it was just part of what you did. It was, you had these sins. And all the other things I don't remember, Father, please forgive me for I've sinned. And it is, yeah. So that's what this was for. For the unintentional sin, the sin you don't remember, the sin that, that you just... It, that way, and the reason for that is you, you got to remember. Still, God knew what He was dealing with. Um, there was a there was a strange sign that Leah sent me a picture of of a church, and the sermon was, "Does did God change or did we?" Right? I don't know what the purpose of the sermon was because it's a bizarre thought because God doesn't change. However, the way God relates to us changed and God met the people where they were. So if, if you were in Leviticus days and you thought that you had to appease God, even Yahweh, and you were worried that if I do a sin offering and there is a sin I forget to get atoned for, I'm still going to get smote. So God said, well, let me, let me cover that for you. We're going to do this sin offering it's for the ones that you don't know you commit or forget that to, to atone for. This is the blanket. And it was very serious because it was a, if you thought you could get smoke for not confessing all your sin, God was trying to give you a little assurance. In the Catholic Church, it's just, yeah, and everything else. Do you miss gun confession at all? Tell the truth. Huh? Which is? The number of prayers. I can give it to you every week. Yeah, I had to confess some weird. Did I ever tell you about the time? Never mind. Mom dragged me down there. I believed in vampires as a kid. Right? Doesn't every kid? And, and we lived in the, the area, and in the front, when you came in, there was a mirror. 
and a little table with a drawer. And you know, vampires, two things. They have no reflection, and they can't hurt you if you don't invite them into your house. Right? So I was prepared. I just always figured if someone came to the door and it was a vampire, I would know. So I wouldn't invite them, but then I had to do something. So I, would, I had this little bottle of water that I kept in the drawer, um, hidden. And I got it from the church, the holy water, right? Because, right? You throw holy water on a vampire, what happens? He burns, right? I was protecting my mom. And mom found it one day, and <laughs> she asked me where it came from. And, and I tried to do that water. What water? I don't know anything about water. No, Mom, not my water. It must be Mike's. And she didn't believe me. Had to go down and confess that I stole holy water to the priest. And I swear, I think I heard him laugh. But that's a whole other story. Um, but that's what this is for. Um, it is a, um, it was so that you could feel like you had purified yourself in a way um, so that you could enter into the presence of God. Because unlike us today, the Jewish thought was you cannot go into the presence of God unless you are pure and clean. It'd be like if we set up a confessional booth outside the sanctuary and you had to stop in before you came in to, to cleanse yourself. It, it's part of the, um, when you dip your hands in the, bap, in the baptismal water, uh, walking in the Catholic Church, it's that same understanding of cleansing before you enter into the sanctuary because the sanctuary is holy and pure and righteous. So that's a real important element in the Jewish faith that we've lost. See, we approach God very casually. We've made God um, buddy Jesus. I mean, we have. Yes, ma'am. And you wash them a certain way. You don't just wash your hands. There's a ritual to how you wash them. Very spelled out. If you've never been, you really need to go to one just to experience some of that. There is nothing casual about worship of Yahweh in the Jewish tradition. Nothing. There is nothing casual about worship in the Catholic tradition, especially the old Catholic tradition. When you walked in a sanctuary Catholic church, you did not talk. There was no noise. There was no prelude. There was no noise. Because if you talked, you got popped up back of your head by mom. Because you just did not. First time I walked in a Protestant church and people were talking, I was like, oh my God. (laughs) There is nothing casual in the Jewish thought about entering into God's place. And we've kind of lost that in a lot of ways. Um, It's one of my, I love both styles of worship here. I really do. I can, I'm comfortable in either. But a lot of times in the non-traditional services, there's sometimes a casualness about God as we make God buddy Jesus. And we forget that this God is holy and to enter into his presence, we need to not be as casual as we sometimes get. And it happens in both services. And it's just a whole different understanding. And um, they would never enter into, a Jew would never enter into the temple in a casual, haphazard manner. So, questions on the sin offering? We're almost done.
Okay, moving on. Then there is the final, the ever-popular guilt offering. Okay? Now, um, the word for guilt is asham, and we translate it to guilt, but it is not about you feeling guilty, right? It's not the same as your conscience telling you that you're guilty. Um, it is a payment for a sins you commit. Um, it's also called the trespass offering or the reparation offering because what you're doing, you're making the symbolic offer of a, to, to make good of a sin that you committed. Um, there was oftentimes a price, monetary value of sorts, um, placed on it with a, okay, this is going to sound weird and I'm sorry, with a 20% increase. Um, and it was all about confession. It was all about confession. Um, and it was usually a ram um, or a male lamb, but usually a ram which, by the way, very symbolic. Abraham, Isaac, what did they find? A ram. Jewish thought would have known that. Um, you laid hands on it. Again, the animal was slayed north of the altar. Um, again, the blood caught in the bowl. Uh, the breast of the animal was given to the priest. And the worshiper kept part of the animal um, for a meal, and then the rest was burnt at the altar. And that was uh, a, a, an, an atonement, if you will. Um, uh, some people now, some people will easily compare this to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross paying the price for our sin. Um, in the Jewish mind, it was very important. Uh, this is different than the Day of Atonement of Yom Kippur. On Palm Sunday, we're going to do the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement involved a goat. And um, it's really fascinating. Read the Day of Atonement. It is fascinating what they did. Um, but it involved a scapegoat. They would take a goat and they would tie red yarn around and they would, they would, he would be led out of the temple, of the, of the tabernacle, into the wilderness by a Gentile and then left in, to go into the wood. And the sim, now I'll tell you what, now there you go. The symbolism of the Day of Atonement and the, rec the recording of the gospel of the crucifixion is eerily similar to the very point of the Gentile. Now, I'm going to have a goat in worship on that day because I was told, amazingly enough, I can have a goat in the sanctuary, but I can't bring a cup of coffee. So I'm bringing a goat. <laughs> I'm going to bring a goat. I haven't gotten permission to have a goat in the chapel. Huh? No coffee in the Bible. But I'm bringing a goat. I'm going to find a goat. I'm going to find some FAA person who will let me borrow their goat. Huh? There's a what? Yeah, Hebrews. Oldie but a goldie. <laughs> I, thought, I was trying to think of a Folger joke. Um, but the, the guilt offering is not the Day of Atonement. Some people misunderstand that. Guilt offering happened regular basis, Day of Atonement, one time a year. The holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur. Um, and it's a goat. So cool. I think it'd be cool. Can you find me a goat? You're going to get a real goat? I don't want goat yoga. I want a goat. <laughs> 
Well, they don't sacrifice the goat. They lead the goat off into the wilderness. No, the goat just, they just take the goat and send them off. And I've always wondered, like, what would happen if the goat came back? Wouldn't that be brutal? Right? You take this goat, you put all your sins of the community, not individual sins. Day of Atonement was not about donor sins. The sins of the community were put on the goat. Sent off. Day of Atonement. Jewish never thought, rarely thought individualistic. It was always the community. So the community was forgiven on the Day of Atonement. So, with the goat. Now, this is now, some people think the offering system is like archaic and horrible, the sacrificial system. But in Hebrew thought, this was the grace of God. Because God accepted them back into his presence through the sacrificial system. And that was huge. This is huge. Now, if you're reading Leviticus, you're going to see these repeated, I think, in chapter 7, 8, 9, maybe up to 10. And the reason why, the first time it's said is for the community, right? Then when it's repeated, it's for the tribe of Levi. Similar, but yet there were slight differences that the priests had to do when they made their offerings for themselves as opposed to the people. So you're going to get in the first, uh, I think, six or seven chapters, the first five offerings, and then you're going to slip over to the next two or three, and you're going to say, wait, I just read these. There are going to be slight differences. Community, Levi's. Okay? Questions? Yeah. Well, with the grain offering, it would be whenever you wanted. And it wasn't 24-7. Robert, you didn't have to go make a burnt offering 24-7, but there was always a burnt offering going on. And then the peace offering, grain offerings would be their individual. Except for the Day of Atonement. That'd be community. But... The burnt offering, it was just, there was always that offering burning as a sign of worship and rising the sweet aroma. Guilt and sin offerings were um, mandatory. And the others were sweet aroma ones. So when you burnt the animal for the other offerings, there was no frankincense. So it stunk. It really stunk. But you also didn't skin it. You only skinned it for the burnt offering. And that was a payment to the priest. On the other ones, the priest got parts of the body, parts of the, the animal to eat. Okay? Questions? It, it, one, once for this one sin, I guess you could bundle them up. It was part of, <laughs> yeah, we're going to do a, a group bundling. There was there was a count, there was a uh, there was worship times of when these offerings would be made. It wouldn't just it wouldn't be Sabbath. They wouldn't make the offering too much on Sabbath because why? Someone had to work. Shabbat. Questions. Yes, ma'am. Sir, someone. Who instigated the concept of sacrifice? Who what? In Leviticus, it'd be God. Because there were sacrificial, animals were getting sacrificed based on records, based on, on understanding of other faiths long before Leviticus. But more often, it was virgins and children being sacrificed. And God said, well, we're not going to have any of that, so we'll do animals only. And then we'll spell out, because it was also, if you look on ancient religions, that sacrifices, um, Leah on a children's director's salary couldn't participate in sacrifices. And so that's why when God, when God instituted this, um, he said, well, there's going to be different levels. But just like in every major religion, there's a flood, not just ours. Every major religion has a flood. 
every major religion has history of sacrifices. So I don't know if there's a, a point where it was only animal. Yahweh was the first to say no children, no virgins, no human sacrifice. Denise? Which is about the goat yoga? Yeah. Well, you were, I, I, I'm guessing the priest, the tribe of Levi would say, hey, Bob, you can afford a bull. So you have to do a bull. Leah, you can do a dove. So I think it was set by, not by the individual, because then, Leah would say, well, I could do a bull, but I don't, I don't want to do the bull. I'm going to do a dub and pretend I'm poor. But they knew. So I think that was more set. But in all these, as long as with, was without blemish, that was the point. It had to be, couldn't be the runt of a litter. You know, um, and it couldn't be the parts of the grain picked off the ground. Yes, ma'am. The best, the best, the best. Wow, that sounds familiar. <laughs> um, but it is. Yes, ma'am. How would they determine Well, Leah wouldn't because she was a woman. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Women were not allowed even into the outer court. Sorry. That's not my rule. Not mine. So it would only be the male and be the male of the family, the patriarch of the family, representing the entire family. Oh, it would just probably, I'm sure every day was a bunch of people coming. There's just blood everywhere. I mean, it was just blood everywhere. I mean, just imagine, I mean, just imagine the amount of blood that comes from one bull. Right? So, so you get a bull, you get a goat, you get a lamb, you have like eight of those a day, nine, ten of those a day, however many. It was just a mess. And there was probably a line and maybe express lines. I don't know how it worked. I've always wondered. Because there were, you know, there are people who say there were a million Jews wandering in the wilderness and there was a tabernacle. Well, you know, a million people. That's a lot of sacrificing. And that's a lot of burning. And a lot of blood. And there, it was just a, it was literally a bloodbath. It was a mess. If you read accounts of historians who, who like to imagine that sort of thing. It was a mess. And and got to remember, blood, the reason why blood was important is blood is a symbol of life. You know, blood is a symbol of life. So, anybody? Yes, we're out before they are. Um, which is all I care about. If you will um, pick up your tables, help pick up tables and chairs, that will be great. And uh, Robert will dismiss us with a blessing. Robert is because he might not do lights, but he has to do prayer.